0: Good morning. We welcome you to this assembly. I want us to take our New Testaments and open them this morning to Ezekiel chapter 18. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 18. We know Ezekiel first as a prophet. He was also a priest. It says in Ezekiel chapter 1 in verse 3, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest. So, here was a man who knew God and was a chosen carrier of God's message to the people in his time. But here is also a man who knew people and he knew their need to worship and obey God as God has directed. Now, as a time reference, think of about 590 years before Christ. During the time Israel was in exile in Babylon, we need to know that God was not silent during that period of exile. He had men like Daniel and Ezekiel. Through these men, the Lord spoke to the people about their future after their exile in Babylon and the Lord wanted to make it very clear to the people there was hope. The message included, though, a high level of individual responsibility. A high level of personal responsibility. See, some people apparently were thinking, we'll just relax until we get to go home. No. God expected the Jewish exiles in Babylon to be active in response to Him, to develop their character continually, to worship, to raise their children and be people of good influence and to be good neighbors. They were not to wait lazily and disobediently. They were to wait obediently and actively for the time God had set for them to be released from exile and to go back home. Now, during the exile period, actually to some extent before they're developed, various rationales, common sayings, ideas that really amounted to an excuse. An excuse that might be worded like this. There's nothing we can do but just wait to go home. We're being punished for what our fathers did. Our forefathers did certain bad things and we just sit here and endure the consequences. So why should we take responsibility? What's the use? Why do anything? Here we are because of the sins of those before us. In Ezekiel chapter 18, God answers that. God answers that. And the answer is given through Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you, In Israel, at various times in the history of a people, earthly wisdom is condensed into a phrase, an expression, a proverb. Today we would use the expression, soundbite. Somebody says something, it sounded good to a lot of people, it seemed to be clever, And that offers some comfort or some excuse for not taking full personal responsibility. And so that phrase just takes off. And it has a life of its own. And it is considered to have some credibility because it is spoken so many times. That happened among the exiles. When the saying was passed around among the Jews, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Do you hear the implication of that? It's not our fault. We are victims. We can't do anything. Our initiative and our personal responsibility just won't make any difference. It was a fatalistic, dismissal of personal responsibility like a child saying my teeth are bad because of what my father ate so why do anything this proverb may not be often quoted today in our culture but you hear the equivalent of this all the time When you challenge someone to account for their ruined lives and their misbehavior, you may hear them blame their parents or refer you to some experience or some history or some episode. Like someone saying, See, I'm a victim. It doesn't matter what I do now. Everything and everybody is against me. It's already determined. So it's not my fault. I'm just going to sit here and do nothing. I tell you, if there is a chance to blame another generation, another person, or another situation for what we've done, the devil wants us to get hold of that. He wants us to get a hold of anything that will dismiss personal responsibility. Examples. This is a fill-in-the-blank kind of example. If my wife would only, fill in the blank, I'd sure be a better husband. Now, turn that the other way. If my husband would only, fill in the blank, I would sure be a better wife. If the preacher would do better work, if the elders would be more involved, if the members would treat me better, if our forefathers hadn't eaten sour grapes. You see what kind of talk that is. Ezekiel 18 says, regardless of what the previous generation did, you need to come to terms with your present responsibility as an individual before God. No justifying proverbs, no dismissal of duty, no excuses, no blaming. If you sin, you're guilty and you ought to be punished. Through Ezekiel, God said to the exiles, don't rely on that common proverb. How clear is that? Don't dwell on what your forefathers did or didn't do. Resist the common urge to use history as your justification. Don't blame history to dismiss your present responsibility. If you are just and you do what is lawful and you avoid what is offensive to God, Ezekiel says you have spiritual life. Your father may have been a saint or a sinner. Your mother may have been nurturing or abusive. The people in your past may have helped you or hurt you. The present matter is, what will I do now with my life before God? No excuses. I will walk in the statutes of the Lord no matter what anyone else does to help or to hinder. I will serve God. That's what we need to get from Ezekiel 18. Act like God's people, even if your forefathers did or didn't. Now, to reinforce all this, Ezekiel gives us four case studies. It is is a unique and intriguing literary method in the Old Testament for a prophet to give you four case studies. Studies of Personal Responsibility. We're going to look at each one of them. Number one is about the righteous man. Verses 5 through 9, please. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not uh, oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is a righteous man. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. Here is a man who kept... The law of Moses he was under. Here is a man who responds to God as God has directed. He's not involved in idolatry up in the mountains where the idols were. He's not guilty of adultery. He isn't oppressing anyone. He pays his bills. He's fair with everyone. There is economic integrity, no robbery, generous to the poor, justice, walking in the statutes of the Lord. This is a good man. And verse 9 says, he shall surely live. He enjoys a healthy spiritual life with God. He is alive and well spiritually in his relationship with God. If this man continues to live in this manner, even if he dies physically and his body decays, he has the hope of life with God after death. Case number one, a good man. Let's call him, as we move to case number two, a good father. Because case number two is about the son. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest and takes profit. Shall he then live? He shall not live." He has done all these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Now, here's another kind of person in case number two. This man is violent, idolatrous, defiles his neighbor's wife. He violates what the Old Testament said about economics. He takes advantage of the poor, commits robbery. He is the moral opposite of his father. Have you ever known a son to be the moral opposite of his father? Of course you have. It happens. We see it. We don't assume that the father failed. We assume the son made stubborn choices against the example and will of his father. The man described in verses 10 through 13 is lost. Spiritually, he is dead, verse 13 says. And that's not about assassination or execution. It means as far as his relationship with God is concerned, he is dead. And he doesn't get a free ride because of daddy. Because of his lack of good response to God, He is as good as dead in terms of his relationship with God. Case number three takes us to the third generation, 14 to 18, please. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up to his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules, and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely Live. Well, we're three generations in. First generation, good man. Second generation, not good. Third generation, good man. This third generation man saw the wickedness of his father and wanted nothing of it. Good for him. So, in case number three, there is a man who lives more like his grandfather. Than his father, no idolatry, no adultery. He obeys the rules of God, follows the economic sanctions of the Old Testament. Verse 17 says, He shall not die for his father's iniquity, he shall surely live. Case number four can be called the apostate. Verse 24. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed for them he shall die. The man described in verse 24 was righteous at one time, but he turned back. Away from his personally chosen righteousness, he went back into sin, abominations, ruin, treachery. What is his condition? Verse 24, he shall die. So far as God is concerned, and his relationship with God, he is spiritually dead. Returning to sin, he's walked away from spiritual life. Into spiritual death. His parents may have been good or not. His grandparents may have been good or not. But this man, verse 24, says, makes a deadly choice. Took a wrong turn and stands guilty. So, if it helps, look back at the four cases. Righteous father, wicked son, righteous grandson, and the apostate is case number four. Now, what do we learn? What do we take away? What do we need to understand from all this? Genetics is no defense against our sin. While genetic tendencies may be subjectively argued by the professionals, there is no evidence in Scripture that your sin can be laid at the ground of your family tree. In fact, that is specifically denied in Ezekiel 18 in the text we've just studied. If If I may parse this out into specifics, please. If you're guilty of adultery or murder, or drunkenness, or lying, you cannot defend yourself by claiming your father or mother did that. It's no defense. There is not a case to be made for fixed genetic determinism that cancels free will. If we had nothing but Ezekiel chapter 18, if we had nothing But Ezekiel chapter 18, we would know we are not morally locked into the conduct of our forefathers. Now, I want to be clear. If your grandfather was wicked and treacherous, and your father was a long-term adulterer or criminal, I do understand it is hard for you Harder for you than those raised in godly homes. But there's no force at work that causes you to sin in the manner of your forefathers. Genetics is not a legitimate defense against sin you have chosen. Nor is genetics an exemption from personal responsibility. Just as I cannot argue that I'm a sinner because of my forefathers, neither can I argue that I can ride on their coattails to heaven. We can thank God if our parents were godly and led us in the right way. But there comes a time when we must walk in that right way ourselves. We must apply that training and that good influence to obey God as they did. I've been preaching 48 years. Sometimes this has happened. I go see a man who's unfaithful, out of duty, doing nothing about the Lord at all. And I plead with him and admonish him and rebuke him. And all he can talk about is how good his daddy was. What a godly mother he had. How well he was trained by his grandparents. One time I said, I didn't come here to talk about your family tree. This man is doing nothing in his present life with those spiritual advantages handed to him. Uh, Some people may not say, but seem to think, well, because mom and dad were good and they went to church, I just get a free ride. No, you don't. Be thankful for your good parents. Cherish those memories and then live in what they taught you from the word. Guilt is never inherited. The text does not say, the soul that sinneth its child will die. That's not what it says. It doesn't say that. The soul who sins shall die. Verse 20. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father. Now the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Never allow yourself to feel guilty about what your parents did that was wrong. You can regret it, but you're not guilty of it. Are you grandparents? or Adam and Eve. You're not guilty of what they did. You can regret that someone in your family did something wrong. You can express yourself, if necessary, about that matter and try to recover them. You can carefully avoid that sin yourself. You should not, however, allow yourself to entertain any guilt about it or think that God holds you accountable for what somebody else did that you didn't have part of. If you had no part in your relative's sin, if you did all you could to keep them from the ugly grasp of sin, don't beat yourself up. Don't ever let anyone's religious doctrine take you down that path. Don't let any misguided person assign guilt to you for your forefather's sins. Are the choices of sin evident in family members that you didn't endorse? Don't let any emotional distress over some family member's sin. Don't let that nurture or lead you into guilt about yourself. Here's a very simple rule. If you didn't do it, didn't encourage it, you know it's wrong, you're not guilty of it. If you didn't do it, you didn't encourage it, you didn't participate in it, you're not guilty of it. Ezekiel 18. Certainly, it is true we must not endorse sin or overlook sin or lead anyone into sin. But when those elements are not present, we should never accept guilt against ourselves for what we have no part in. Guilt is not inherited consequences may burden us from the sin of others. God said the sins of the fathers would be visited on their children. That's through consequences or influence if the children commit the same sins. But there is no force at work making children automatically guilty of what their fathers did or making them sin those sins. Guilt is only assigned to the individual transgressor. The bottom of the page in Ezekiel 18, what you come out with is this God is concerned with what I'm doing now. God treats people as individuals. Yes, it is true what others do may help you or may hurt you. Some parents lead their children in the way that is right, and some do not, except for Adam and Eve. Everybody has always had a previous generation to blame. But after you make those judgments and tell those stories and make those excuses and plead your case with many words, it's you and God. It's me and God. God will not punish you for what your father did. God will not reward you for what your father did. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he's committed and keeps my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. He. Personal responsibility. No one will be punished for anyone else's sins. And no one will gain eternal life on the coattails of someone else's favor with God. Individual responsibility, no excuses, no transfer of blame. We must let God's word have such a deep and living place within us, we consistently think in terms of personal responsibility. As far as blaming others or seeking creatively to find some way to dismiss our own initiative, we don't go down those pathways. Part of the fall was Adam and Eve didn't take full responsibility before and after the sin. King Saul, in that case of incomplete obedience to God in 1 Samuel 15, he blamed the people. When Aaron built the golden calf, he said the people wanted it. And the people then blame Moses. Jesus warns us about trying to find the speck in our brother's eye when we've got a two-by-four right here. Someone said, You can't talk your way out of problems you behave yourself into. Stephen Covey, and he was right. You can't talk your way out of problems you behave yourself into. Well, that's our study. It will be good for me and you to spend some serious time just with focus on you and God, me and God. No circumstantial excuses, no generational blame, no reference to others, being a victim, had a hard life, parents are too good, parents were too bad. No, it's me and God you can't talk your way out of problems, you behave yourself into. If you need to respond to God, make that choice now while we stand together to sing.